Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining me. I'm excited to talk about this show. That is the HBO series The Last of Us. It's already a bona fide hit. The Guardian wrote that it's one of the finest shows that you'll see this year. The Washington Post says The Last of Us stays true to the game and hits just as hard. But most importantly, audiences and fans of the game seem more than pleased. And the same goes for me. It's really, really good. So I'm so thrilled to have creator, writer, director, and producer Craig Mazin back on Pop Culture Confidential to talk about it. Last time he was on with me, it was for Chernobyl, an absolute masterpiece of a series. And he's done it again with The Last of Us. But first, I want to say that I'll be doing things a bit differently this time. I spoke to Craig this week right after the premiere of episode one, but I also really wanted to talk to him specifically about episode three, which really blew my mind. So I'm going to be republishing the show in a couple weeks to include that segment. Don't miss that. It was a really great discussion. So The Last of Us is based on the acclaimed game from 2013, created and written by Neil Druckmann, who is also the co-writer and co-creator of The Last of Us series together with Mason. The Last of Us takes place after a fungal outbreak has caused a global pandemic. Joel, played by Pedro Pascal, who lost his daughter to the outbreak 20 years earlier, has to smuggle and transport a teenager, Ellie, played by Bella Ramsey, across the country to a laboratory as she seems strangely immune to the disease and could be the key to a vaccine and ending the pandemic. The story blends monstrous mutations with powerful themes of sacrifice, love, moral conundrums, parenthood, and found family. Here we go, one. Yeah. Is it hard? Knowing they were people once. I'm taking you with me. We can just keep our histories to ourselves. You don't tell anyone about your condition. We try to keep you alive. You're not immune from being ripped apart. Frank, we will never have friends because there are no friends to be had. Just because life stopped for you doesn't mean it has to stop for me. There's no halfway with this. We finish what we started.
Craig Mason, welcome back to my show, and thank you for another incredible show now with The Last of Us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so glad you uh, you like it. I feel like this is now uh, the thing that you and I do every few years, so this is exciting. <laughs> the best TV adaptation of a game ever, the critics are saying. So any fears you had of angry fans, that's out the window. Well, yeah, I mean, you're always worried. Um, uh, we obviously make television for an audience. We want the audience to appreciate it. We want them to find it and we want them to hopefully, you know, understand it uh, the way we do. So it seems like it's connected the way we were hoping. I heard you announce that you were working on The Last of Us on your screenwriting podcast, Script Notes. I think it was March, February, something 2020. You said that playing the game made you feel things. I was wondering what those things were. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, in a good way, it was hard to qualify what they were. Um, I, I felt, obviously, I felt sorrow and grief and shock when Sarah died. But as you go forward and you play, I was starting to feel this, it's almost like this uh, bittersweet um, need for Joel and Ellie to to stay together and to help each other. But the bittersweet part was that, you know, you were worried that there was always something terrible around the corner and where it all ended up was way more ambiguous than I expected. And that's an interesting feeling. It's more of a challenge to our sense of what is a happy ending. And it's truer, I think, to, to life because, I mean, the happiest endings still end in death, which, you know, obviously for, for Swedes, this is no big deal. But for the rest of us, we really struggle <laughs> with this. <laughs> yeah. um, we're going to get into some of the more philosophical things. But I want to ask you, an unexpected thing happened then when you were writing, unexpected for us all. We all became experts, doctors, this pandemic right. that we were suddenly in. Did you learn anything and like, oh, shit, this is how we react? Well. Obviously, we all did. I mean, we all became junior epidemiologists. We all learned so much about even the surprises. Like, I, I don't think anybody expected that toilet paper would be the, the most important commodity uh, as, you know, people started to buy things and, and, and remove them from shelves. So we did learn. But what was interesting about The Last of Us is that the pandemic has essentially concluded and the fungus won. So it isn't so much, there wasn't anything that was really particularly applicable because we were going through a process that we all felt like, look, we're going to make it through this. We're going to come out on the other end. Um, but um, in The Last of Us, we didn't make it through. Uh, it's, it, um, it's over. So what we did, definitely did want to do, uh, though, is right off the bat acknowledge that we're aware that a pandemic happened. We, we understand the seriousness of viral pandemics and what we're suggesting is there is something much worse. It was important for us to acknowledge to the audience that we weren't ignorant of the fact that we all just went through this. The history of TV adaptations of games has been a rough road. I mean, you basically have two audiences, the ones that know the game, have played the game and love it, and the ones that don't. So when you and Neil Druckmann, the creator and writer of the game, were starting out, what things did you know would not translate? 
Well, you never know for sure, but as you go along, you begin to get better and better at guessing and predicting. Uh, but I think philosophically from the start, we understood that gameplay is not necessarily translatable to television, that the adaptation process needs to account for the fact that we are a passive experience. We are sitting back and we are watching and we, uh, we understand what that is as an audience member. We have been watching our whole lives. And those of us who play games, we've been playing games our whole lives. It's the gameplay aspect is the difference. What made The Last of Us so worthy of adaptation was that there was so much to it that was translatable, that, that we could carry through to television because, you know, I, I always tell Neil, like, it, I, when I played it, I could see there was like a show dying to get out, you know, it was like it was in there. One of the things that Naughty Dog, um, the company that makes The Last of Us, one of the things that they're really good at is including story in gameplay. So it's not like we said, oh, you know, if there's gameplay, we just ignore it. But we pull those moments out. And then when we do show action, um, violence, we do so with, I think, a lot more specificity because we're not putting people in gameplay loops where, in a sense, repetition is part of the enjoyment, but rather we are making dramatic statements where something happens that both moves the story forward and also changes the key characters and their relationships. Neil is just was so cinematic with the game to begin with. Must have been amazing for when you guys started. Oh, with, yeah, uh, it's, it's a huge help. I mean, his Neil does think about things cinematically. Um, no Country for Old Men was another touchstone for him as he was making The Last of Us. Um, he even, in in the creation of the cutscenes, for instance, you know, from the game where you stop playing and you just watch, uh, Naughty Dog is really smart about not putting the camera in weird places, but rather making it feel verite and filmed. Um, and I think also specific to The Last of Us, the fact that the heroes are humans with no supernatural abilities whatsoever is a big part of why it is very adaptable. Um, not to say that people don't enjoy the supernatural, they do. We watch Marvel movies all the time, but movies and particularly spectacle films, I think are great showcases for that sort of uh, mythological storytelling. I think, you know, superhero movies to me are just modern, you know, gods and monsters. Um, but when you're adapting a video game into this long form uh, of eight or nine or 10 episodes of a season, the fact that the heroes are grounded in human uh, is, is a huge, I think it's a huge benefit. It makes everything feel a bit more accessible and real. Oh, yeah, and all the moral conundrums and everything just become so right. real. One thing I didn't know that I learned from your show as well, that, that you had a philosophy on violence in your showrunner notes. Yes. What was that philosophy? Well, in gameplay, violence is your primary mode of getting through obstacles. Part of gameplay is to set up, you know, they call them loops. You know, you're in a stage, I have to get from here to here. But in between where I am and where I need to go or what I need to get, there are bad guys, whether they are humans or they're infected NPCs, non-player characters. And part of your job is to get through them and your primary method of getting through them is to kill them. 
And that is fun in a video game. When you're watching television, uh, if we were to make violence the primary mode of getting through things, we would be piling up bodies left and right, at which point the tone changes quite dramatically to something that feels a little bit broader than what we wanted to do. So our feeling was acts of violence that you, you yourself do not press a button to commit, but rather we force you to watch on our terms um, are going to be, I think they deserve more attention and care. And when violence happens, we wanted it to be as impactful as we could make it. Um, so the, there is violence. When it occurs, we try our best to show that the violence is permanent meaning unlike a game where we must have a healing mechanism or we're not going to be able to play more than 10 minutes, there's no healing here in any easy way. If you get shot, you're either going to die or you are going to suffer for a long time. If you punch somebody in the face, you're going to break your hand and your hand isn't going to heal between episodes. We try as best we can to show the impact of violence on the body because, um, so much of what we're dealing with in this world is is survival and anger and fear and when that stuff is manifested in violence we want to show how that impacts somebody's life in a permanent and serious way besides yourself and neil you have some incredible directors on here ali abasi who's done holy spider jasmine nazbanik an incredible bosnian film director who yes. did one of my favorite school bodies, Aida. Did you have a particular sensibility that you were looking for when you were choosing directors? Yeah, I could probably sum it up in two words, Johan Renk. <laughs> 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 um, you know, I had such an incredible experience with Johan doing. If you're an athlete, you know, the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Um, doing Chernobyl, and Yohan was originally, um, yeah, was I'm going to have to say, yeah, you won. I have to do like his name properly. You won. Uh, is that close? You yes, won. yes, you won. Yeah, you won. You won. You won. Um, that he was so he was going to do it, and then uh, so like you pointed out, a little bit after Neil and I started working on it, the pandemic occurred. Everybody's projects got shifted back. He had a, a feature that he was going to make that got shifted, and so we he just wasn't available. And so then the question was like, okay, well, let's look around and see who else is out there um, and let's be quirky about it. Let's be interesting. Let's not shy away from um, independent filmmakers and people who are coming from wildly different points of view and perspectives and, and lands. So we had American directors, an Israeli director, uh, a Persian, Swedish, Danish director, a Bosnian director, um, Brits, and and that's how we kind of put this all together. It is really interesting. For instance, Yasmila Zmanic, you know, she grew up in the middle of a civil war in Sarajevo. Uh, 
she understood what it meant to be living in a war-torn city where tribalism had, had turned into this horrible violence. And so when I talked to her, I was like, look, there's this episode where I think, you know, we're going to be in a war-torn city and, and who else, who would be better than you? And she's like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I want to do an episode. I want to do the episode where they get somewhere that isn't war-torn, but actually is functioning. She was so invested in the notion that out of war and tragedy could come a functioning, healthy society and, and particularly a functioning, healthy society that had, because the world ended, had a chance to break the cycle of patriarchy. Uh, and that was really interesting to all of us. And so I was like, okay, you got it. That's Go yours. It. <laughs> You're doing that one. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many incredibly interesting moral discussions going on in this show and this story. I mean, individuality versus the collective survival instincts that have a cost to your humanity, I would say. Um, did you guys have big discussions in the writers' rooms and with these directors? And Yeah, I think, you know, Neil and I would, would talk a lot about this stuff. I mean, there were certain things that we, you know, were just so evident from the game and we could discuss and maybe elucidate a little more clearly between ourselves and then for the audience because we have more time, more story time, essentially. Um, but the, the, I think the biggest discussions we would have would circle around the nature of love and how you, we cannot survive without it. And it is kind of what makes life worth living. But also is the thing that leads to some of our most dangerous impulses, some of our most tribalistic um, and defensive impulses. And how our strong, the, the most the most powerful bond, I think, of love is between a parent and a child, really from parent to child, not the other way around. And the moral question, how many of your children's lives are worth one of my children's lives? We just can't help but organize the world in this fashion. It's just my kid means more than yours. Does it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? And what does that lead us to? And so just questions turning on the nature of love, both positive and negative, that was the big philosophical discussion that I was really interested in having and pulling out through the story um, as we went along. And did you come to any personal conclusions? Yes, it's, 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 it's sort of an ambiguous one, a little bit like the conclusion I came to at the end of Chernobyl, which was that lying is really bad and I don't know how we are able to get through lives without it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is um, that uh, we are not capable of being perfectly moral creatures. We are inherently immoral because we are controlled still by this very basic um, animal instinct to love to the exclusion of everything else. And we, all we can do, I think, is just be aware of it and try and make sure that where our love starts to turn to fear and therefore anger and violence and xenophobia and racism and protectionism that we 
try to fight that instinct as best we can with the understanding that we are still, after all, only human. I find it uh, comforting that so many people playing this game to begin with and seeing are actually thinking about these things. Yeah. When we get to the end, there's going to be quite a discussion. There's no there question is. about that. There is. And I want to talk about the opening before we get to the end, which is absolutely genius, um, which is oh, something that wasn't in the game that I'm certain comes from you. It's it's um, John Hanna is a group of scientists in the 60s and what you describe as perfectly as a Dick Cavett type of scenario. And they're yeah. just smoking in their brown corduroys <laughs> and uh, talking about how this is going to come and this fungus is not going to be a cure and we're not going to be able to do anything about it. Why did you decide to do this opening? Well, I originally wrote it before I think I wrote anything else. Way, way back at the beginning, I wrote it um, and I sent it to Johan and I said, hey, I found this on the internet. It's a transcript from an old Dick Cavett from 1968. Oh, it actually was Dick Cavett. I mean, the inspiration. Oh, Dick Cavett was definitely the inspiration. No question. I'm obsessed with those old Dick Cavett interviews because, you know, there was a time when talk shows were so literate and intellectual. I mean, you had these incredible people on um, and they would have these remarkably elevated conversations. Um, and so I, 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 I wrote it, I, it wasn't real, but I wrote it and sent it to you on as if it were. And I said, look what I found. And he was like, holy shit, I can't believe it. <laughs> I was like, ah, I gotcha. <laughs> but, um, it was, I, I showed it to Neil and he was like, well, this is really interesting, but maybe the way to start is to just show this video there was a documentary um uh i think it's planet earth where they show how cordyceps functions and so we were thinking oh we'll make our own and that's how we'll start and uh you know just it, it wasn't great and so i don't know it was maybe like three or four weeks before we were going to finish shooting i said to neil i'm gonna pull this back out of my drawer here and i'm gonna put it in proper scene format what do you think and he goes yeah it's actually pretty good let's do this so <laughs> We uh, we shot that. It was pretty close to the end. I think it was in our last week uh, of shooting. Um, and yeah, we brought in John Hanna and Josh Brenner, who's so good at just everything. And um, I got to tell you, I am stunned at the reception that scene has gotten. I thought, honestly, that people were going to be like, uh... It's boring, <laughs> and uh, and in fact, what what we keep hearing over and over, are people saying that's the scariest moment in the, in the first it episode, is. which is something else. I mean, it's I I I don't know. My uh, I guess I should stick to writing scientists from the sixties, seventies, and eighties. So far, so good. It's decades apart, of course, but there is sort of a Chernobyl esque feeling. But I also kept thinking that the cigarette smoking corduroy experts were not listening to them. Maybe next time the Kardashians or something should tell Good us point. about the we, we might get, yes, prettier people will help us understand everything. Um, I, I did like the, one of the things I liked about that opening, A, acknowledging, hey, we are aware that there was a pandemic, everybody at home, was also to suggest that when this disaster occurs and everything falls apart, it doesn't happen suddenly. It happens finally, that there is like, it's just, it's 
that somebody said in 1968, this is going to happen. And by the time we get to 2003, it's not, we understand this isn't just a, oh, it just happened to happen today. People have been talking about this forever. And that's, you know, unfortunately how it works with us. We know things are coming. We know the earthquakes are coming. We know that the, the, there's a rise in sea level. And we know that there's going to be more extreme climate and tsunamis. And as long as it's not happening today, we just seem to be fine. We just in here out the other. So I want to talk about a specific episode, which, oh God, you made me cry. All right, everyone, we are pausing the show here because as my conversation with Craig Mason continued, we talked about the incredible episode three, more themes and spoilers that are coming up in the show. So we will republish the rest of this interview right after episode three is available on HBO on the 29th. Don't miss that episode and the discussion I had with Mason about making that episode. Thank you so much for listening. Pop Culture Confidential is a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Find us wherever you find your podcasts. See you next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.